Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. It's been a slice in this last little while since uh, we've talked together out there in listener land. And whether you're listening on podcast or on CIUT 89.5 FM, welcome. Always uh, delighted, of course, to hear from you. So uh, keep those inquiries and comments coming. And uh, we really need you, and especially now. So we're going to focus on now. The second part of the show I'm I'm excited about. We're playing um, recording, actually, from uh, two incredible scientists. One is Eric Topol. He's a cardiologist. He's executive VP of Scripps Research, professor of molecular medicine in the States. And Eddie Holmes, who's a professor at the University of Sydney and a virologist, and one of those who were there right at the beginning of COVID, who actually let the world know that there was such a thing as COVID coming out of Wuhan, working with Chinese scientists. So we're going to hear from them about the trajectory, you know, how uh, we got to hear about COVID, what's happened, what should be happening that isn't happening, and how we prevent any further pandemic. So uh, stay tuned for that in the second half of the show. Right now, though, I'm really excited to have uh, MPP Joel Harden. He is our member from Ottawa Centre and um, and just uh, have always been a fan. He was a community organizer before he was elected. But also, I mean, he's just one of those great lefties uh, in the NDP that, of course, the Radical Reverend is always happy to support. Uh, so, Joel, welcome uh, to the Radical Reverend Show. Good morning. Good morning. Nice to talk to you, Radical Reverend. Good morning, Sherry. So let's start right in on the paid sick leave, because this is something that you've put forward. I know uh, Peggy Sattler uh, has put forward. Now Steve Del Duca's jumped on the bandwagon. Um, so th- the opposition to the Ford government are speak with one voice on this issue, as do all the unions and as do most of the people. Um, why don't we have it? Why aren't they moving on this? Uh, because Premier Ford's a prisoner of his own ideology. That would be my succinct answer. Uh, I think Premier Ford uh, believes that an inadequate federal COVID-specific sick leave program is enough. But one of his first actions as Premier was to take away the meager amount of two paid sick days that we had fought for under the previous parliament, that you were part of fighting for under the previous parliament. It was one of his first acts of government. So no one with any sobriety here is going to be surprised that the premier thinks an inadequate federal program that has seen low usage because it doesn't work. It doesn't work for people in precarious employment. Uh, you know, people can't ensure that they work the requisite amount of hours. They need the money right away. They don't want to wait for some federal program to perhaps review their application for sick leave, perhaps pay them later. When moms and dads are worried about being COVID positive, but no, they have to put food on the table. They're put in that awful decision about going to the grocery store, going into long-term care home, uh, going out in any kind of service occupation where we know the rates of COVID are much higher. They're, the government is compelling them to work sick. We got um, a half-baked program from the federal government and Premier Ford, because of his ideology, he just does not want to six, extend a systemic sick leave program. He's opposed to it. He said several times he doesn't believe in this thing he calls the nanny state. Uh, So to that, I I think that's a euphemism for he doesn't believe in effective public policy mechanisms to help people in their time of need. So I think that's what the holdup is, quite frankly. It's it's Premier Ford's ideology imprisoning the province and and 
imprisoning workers and their families and making them less safe. That's the real shameful thing. I want to speak uh, more about this, but but let's back up a little bit. Um, you're a, a rookie at Queen's Park. Uh, this is your first taste of sitting in those green leather seats. Um, <laughs> what are some of the surprises? What are you know? What are some things that you expected you didn't find, and and things that you found that you didn't expect? Oh man. Um, so I mean, I guess I would say I am not much of a partisan, to be very honest with Sherry. Like I, I spent a lot of my life always an NDP supporter. Um, I, I met Jack and Olivia in the 90s, and they struck me as a different kind of politician that really cared about the community and kept a strong relationship with social movements, social movement organizers like me. Um, but when I got to Queen's Park, there is such, just given the nature of the place, and you know this better than anybody, I think there's just such an inbuilt desire to want to speak in frothy terms about how uh, just empty rhetoric, really, how one team is entirely wrong, one team is entirely right. Of course, it's more complicated than that. But what I have seen very clearly, and I had been skeptical of it previously, is what kind of speechifying in the legislature can do to build movements at home and around the province. It does pick people up. It does inspire people when they see folks going to bat for them. Um, and it has surprised me on occasion when I get notes from the government side you know, asking me to continue pushing for people with disabilities. I'm very proud. Our office is very proud to be the critic for people with disabilities across the province. And there's a lot of empathy even there. But you know, that caucus is so tightly whipped. Uh, any complaints we may have about our own seem to pale in comparison, right? Um, so I will, I will say that. I mean, I, I wanted this work. A whole community of people wanted um, us to take the seat in Ottawa Centre because we believed that in this seat, there is space for empowering local community organizing and that accessing those resources matter and sending out that beacon to not just our city but the whole province matters that we don't have to settle for piecemeal reform and you know band-aid solutions that you know our grandmothers and grandfathers fought for a society that was much more ambitious than that and we've already seen with some partial victories even under this government that fighting back makes a difference so that that has that has been nice, but I will also, you know, you won't be surprised to hear uh, having to sit in those leather chairs sometimes and suffering through a lot of frothy words, uh, knowing the reality of what's going on back home and around the province. That's been tough. Yeah. Um, speaking here to Joel Harden, uh, MPP for Ottawa Centre on the Radical Reverend Show. Joel, you mentioned people with disabilities and you're a critic in that portfolio. There's there's such a disconnect between um, what the rhetoric is, talking about rhetoric, and the reality here. Um, I mean, people don't probably realize who aren't people with disabilities and, and or aren't on ODSP that, mm. I mean, they actually make less than CERB. Um, their oh, lot has has not improved one iota. And now yeah. we have people with disabilities at home with their caretakers, many of whom need their caretakers. They're with them who aren't eligible for vaccines even. They're not at the top yeah. of the list. Yeah. You know, of course, on social media and everywhere else they can, they're very, very vocal about th this reality, but nobody seems to be listening. And uh, just to look at your own situation, I mean, Christine Elliott, who's the deputy premier, has a son with a developmental disability. She yeah. was a developmental disability critic for a long time on the other side of the house, spearheaded yeah. a developmental disabilities committee that made multiple recommendations that were all good, that all parties agreed with. And here she is supporting a government that's in no way uh, a supporter of PWD folk. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. You know, have you talked to her? What, what does she have to say for herself? I'm, I'm shocked. 
Well, it's very rare I get any audience with Minister Elliot, but I, I will. I, I've had the same experience and curiosity going into the job. I knew her late husband uh, because I used to work uh, for the labor movement, and I had occasion to be in a room as a research expert on pensions when he would be arguing with various labor leaders. So even though he was on the complete other side of the spectrum, he got the case for retirement security at one level, and he was struggling with how he could push then Prime Minister Harper to expand the Canada pension plan. So I had a sense of how uh, the Elliot Flaherty household was not the uh, the Tea Party North, perhaps, put it that way, that there was a compassionate element to their conservatism. Uh, but there appears to be absolutely no space or perhaps interest in Minister Elliot now speaking out for people with disabilities who are among the worst, as you say, impacted people. Our colleagues in British Columbia um, implemented right away a $300 a month increase to disability benefits in their province across the board. Everybody got it. What happened in Ontario? This government gave $100 a month to people who could find their ODSP worker to apply for it. The program existed for four months, and then they took it away early in July. It was just shameful. And, you know, Lisa Gretzky, who you know well, uh, has, has been leading the fight in our caucus on the income security side. And I have been on people with disabilities policies, doing my best to listen, to bring those stories to the government, to bring them to the media. Um, and it, it's it's heartbreaking. But, you know, we again, we have had victories, one-off victories. I can tell you a couple stories if you're interested. So one is um, you, you may, you know, you're, you're on social media. I have a great team that pays more attention to it than than I do, I'll be honest. But one of the things that happened recently in the last two weeks was the government introduced what they called an equine hardship program for small businesses in Ontario that had horses, donkeys, mules, these sorts of animals for uh, education programs like riding programs. And this, and they, the, the, the amounts were $2,500 per animal to a maximum of $20,000 uh, per, per operation. And this drove people with disabilities crazy because they were already angry that the CERB, which vast majority of them didn't qualify for, was $2,000 a month. While if you're on ODSP and you qualify as a single for the most amount of money, that's $1,169 a month. And most people don't get that. So they're furious uh, at the CERB and they're furious at this equine hardship program. But I, I come from rural Ontario. I grew up in the Ottawa Valley and I called my parents. My mom's a, a huge horseback rider. And I said to her, mom, you know, I, I seem to think a lot of these education businesses have programs for people with disabilities and they're called therapeutic riding associations. I remember some of your friends involved in this. She said, yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk to some of them? So I picked up the phone and I started calling people and I said, you know, we're really glad that your businesses are getting, we know the animals aren't working. We know you're completely broke. Small businesses is just in a tough place, but would you be willing to speak out for the rights of people with disabilities and, and share your story? Take a picture of yourself with your horse. I don't know, something. Every single person I talked to, Sherry said, yes. We have four testimonies. We put them out there on social media. And so it was interesting. Folks on ODSP spend a lot of time connecting with each other on social media for, for support. Makes a lot of sense. And some of them were coming up with these horse memes, <laughs> basically saying, I matter more than a horse or a horse shouldn't matter more than me. And what I think we were able to do, and maybe it's just my training in community organizing, is, is rather than see it as me versus the horse or me versus the small business, people with disabilities got to see that their advocates were much, much, the advocacy for them was much bigger than they thought it was. And we're, we, we're still working on that. There's therapeutic riding associations across the province. And a lot of those associations are based in Tory represented areas or in rural Ontario. And I, I think the government, quite frankly, is out of touch with its own base. And, you know, what I'm trying to do is the critic is bring together a whole bunch of disability rights movements and people you might not think to be allies together to put that pressure back on the government to get their attention. There's no reason why Ontario can't do what BC did. 
There's absolutely no reason at all. It's just cruelty and they have to get over their cruelty. They have to put the money into place to help people who are suffering right now. And uh, I mean, this is a government, of course, if we remember that originally had a, over 12 billion from um, from the feds and now sitting on That's 6 right. billion plus uh, that they're not That's spending. Right. I'm speaking right. here to uh, Joel Harden, member of provincial parliament, MPP for Ottawa Centre for the NDP. And we're talking about all things Queen's Park and, of course, Ford Nation. So sick days, do you think we'll get them? I mean, it was very interesting to me to hear Monty McNaughton, for example, uh, start calling on the on the feds to do more around sick days. And I thought, okay, well, there's a sure sign they're feeling the pressure. There is a sure sign they're hearing from constituents, even though they don't respond, um, that they're hearing from people, that they're, maybe they're doing polling, who knows. But I mean, people. this is something that every just about everybody's behind. So yeah. do you think there's any room there to see some action in some way, shape or form? What are you hearing? Yes. Yes, I'm hearing the same thing. And I'm hearing it from unlikely quarters. You know, we I'm, I'm hearing it from big employers in the city who contact us and say, you know, why the hell hasn't the province come up with a sick day regime? The one that exists federally is terrible. And I just tell them, pick up the phone, call these people. They're likely to listen to you more than they'll listen to me, but we're going to keep the pressure up. And I just want people who are hearing your show to, to know that all of that troublemaking you're doing, all the emails, all the phone calls, all the pressure you're bringing on the government, regardless of where you're from, it does contribute to something. These people do have to run for election again. They want to be loved. They want to be seen as champions. And if uh, if folks in Tory represented areas or uh, anywhere else, frankly, are using your platform, because we all have a platform in this life to, to demand the government implemented the sick day regime, it does add up to something. It's a movement and we have to keep building that movement. And I tip my hat to the decent um, decent work and in health initiatives, Ontario Federation of Labor, the workers action centers, all of the folks who have been putting that pressure on in a leadership role. I think they're starting to feel hundreds of thousands of us coming behind them right now. And uh, when Premier Ford finally allows Parliament to resume, you better believe he's going to be getting hammered with this every day. I understand uh, from our leader, Andrew Horvath, that Peggy Sattler has actually moved a private member's bill. Mine was a motion encouraging the government to take action. Peggy is actually moving a private member's bill to create a sick day regime. It'll be the first thing we do. And I hope we, frankly, we're going to ask for all party consent to implement the regime right away. Um, and it'll be up to the government to say yes or no. And if they say no, they're in big trouble. They're in big trouble with their supporters. We're going to keep pushing until they say yes. Let's also talk about the other uh, big issue in the province. It seems to me that there's a whole lot of effort and pressure around, including mainstream media pressure now, and that's long-term care. Yeah. Um, I call it long-term crime. My hashtag's long-term crime. I've yeah. been getting some play. Um, but I mean, here you've got doctors, healthcare workers, um, PSWs, uh, families, everybody. Um, horror stories coming out of long-term care right across the province, a major source of death, residents in long-term care from COVID. Um, they're getting the vaccine out. Um, that's good, but the conditions still remain abysmal. Uh, and there's been a call to, for example, from the Ontario Health Coalition to send in the Army, at least the Army medical team, somebody, somebody to go yeah. in there. Um, and I've had a number of the doctors who are uh, known on this file on this show, Dr. Vivian and Neely and others. Um, mm -hmm. But I, but from the political point of view, what was, what's the sense in Queen's Park? I mean, this government is under incredible pressure to do something. Or what are they like? We get why they're not because they're all invested in long-term care and many conservatives sit on the boards. I mean, this is kind of common knowledge now. Um, and they just don't want the bad news getting any worse. 
but they can't kind of hold that back. So do you think they're going to do something? Is there any hope there? I mean, I again, I go back to my response for sick day, Sherry. I think the government's a victim of its own ideology. I don't think they can see a role for public ownership in the sector beyond what exists. And that's just because they believe in market solutions. So, you know, a friend of, uh, of mine, probably a friend of yours recently, Leo Panich, he just passed away and I was a student of Leo's. And what he used to say, given what he learned from his teacher, Ralph Miliband, is that the state isn't just a simple committee for the ruling class in our country. That is fought over. It's a lot more complicated than that. But the interlocking directorships and the interlocking partnerships are part of it. But I don't look at it as a conspiracy. I don't like to think of it that way. I think the government truly believes the market is the answer for everything. They truly are true believers, and there's a spectrum of believership on their side of the aisle, right? Some of them may be more skeptical than others. But on this issue, they are prisoners of their ideology. And when I heard Minister Elliott the other day say that the iron ring, this purported iron ring they were going to create around long-term care was the vaccine, that that actually was the iron ring when we know that we don't have enough vaccines to do what the experts have been telling the government to do, focus them all on long-term care residents and workers. They don't have enough to do that right now. So they're basically condemning people to die. You know, and, and I know from the research here in Ottawa, I know that folks who are healthcare professionals who are not working in long-term care homes, folks who are not long-term residents have been prioritized for the vaccines that have been administered to date. So that is going to be on this government. Whatever explanation they may want to dish out to us at the legislature, this is going to be, I truly believe, one of the deciding factors in the next provincial election. They are going to be hung out to dry because of their adherence to this market belief that encouraging more public and nonprofit ownership in the sector would somehow, just because of their philosophy, be the wrong choice. There were earlier generations of conservatives who built public power, who built public health care, workplace benefits that were not trapped in the way this government is trapped. Um, so the, the sad thing, as, as Dr. Vivian has said um, so clearly, is that an event like this hasn't been noticed. I mean, can we think, and Dr. Vivian says this often, if there were 3,000 deaths in, in, in childcare centers, there would be immediate action. You know, if there were 3,000 deaths in affluent condos in Toronto and Ottawa, there would be immediate action. But, it's, you know, when it's about long-term care homes, particularly those Class C homes, 300 people in a building, vast majority of them lower income folks, some of whom have been abandoned by their families, you know, when it's them, it doesn't matter. Then we can wait for the goddamn vaccine, which is not even here. Like, you better believe it. We've already been hammering them on this. The, I look at all the folks in long-term care homes as people with disabilities, quite frankly. I see them all as part of the community I am very personally proud to serve. And I promise you, we've been hammering them with this when they passed legal liability, a, a lessening of legal liability for, for homes in their Bill 218 um, at the height of this pandemic. When, when they had former top staff members of Premier Fords going to work at the worst moment of the first wave uh, for Extended Care and Rivera and Siena Living, I told them all, um, because like you, I like to treat people across the aisle as human beings. But I told them all, this is going to tank you. You are done on this issue alone. I would like to think it's the climate emergency too. I would like to think it's racism too. I would like to think it's a whole lot of things. But this is the thing. You know, when we are allowed 
go to the people and the people get to decide on what kind of government they want, I think this is our best chance. If we are the party that stands up and says, we are booting out all of these, the giant vampire squid of all of these huge, disgusting, for-profit corporations out of the sector, we're fulfilling Tommy Douglas's vision of a public healthcare system that is inclusive of long-term care and home care, I think we have a great chance to win the next election. I don't give a damn what the polls say right now. I think we have a great chance to win the next election if we put our socialist principles out there and we believe in them and we communicate them to a broad audience. Uh, that is the only solace I have in this horrifying moment is that uh, a reckoning is coming. It's coming. I would say already it's, it's, it's happening. Um, if you look at the community that's rallying around Dr. Fisman right now, you know, after he's exposed this government's relationship to Madame Holmes and all these corporate interests behind our hospitals in Toronto. I, I just I just interrupt. I, I, I just tweeted out that this is a Canadian version of The Sopranos and all we're looking for <laughs> is a good script writer uh, because you've got, you know, developers, you've got money, you've got, you know, I mean, it's got all the elements, right? Um, by the way, talking to Joel Harden here, uh, MPP for Ottawa Centre, and we're talking, of course, about long-term care, which, by the way, way back when I was first elected in 2006, was a, was still an issue back then. I mean, there was no COVID or pandemic, but, you know, we were fighting for more hours per resident care. We were talking yeah. about the quality of care in for-profit mm -hmm. homes back then. Nothing mm -hmm. has changed. And this just shows what can go wrong when nothing changes in the for-profit model. Uh, well, I'm afraid for all of that, Joel, we're out of time at this point, but it's been so much fun uh, speaking to you. Keep on fighting. Uh, you've got a growing, you know, following and there's lots and lots of support for a different way of doing government. I mean, this is this is not. I mean, Uncle Doug is, wear, is wearing th thin. I think on people. I mean, it's just wearing thin. I mean, Uncle Doug's just not cutting it anymore. People are seeing past that. I mean, the death toll is showing uh, in stark numbers. Who are not just numbers or human beings. Um, just what a failure this government is. So thank you for all you're doing. Um, best of luck, and uh, love to have you on again sometime. For sure. If I can put in a quick plug at the end, Sherry, mm -hmm. for our own podcast, which is called Troublemaker Radio. You can find it at any of the podcast platforms. And our show that we're going to be uh, putting out in the next few days is on a conversation about caring professions and long-term care. Dr. Vivian is one of our guests, as well as uh, Lynn Steele from the Canadian PSW Network. Uh, we'd love to co-mingle with your audience. We'd love to keep learning and spreading the troublemaking, which we need. Absolutely. So take care. Till next time. Bye. Take care. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. And now we go to a wonderful conversation between Eddie Holmes, professor at the University of Sydney, a virologist, and there right at the beginning of the discovery of COVID, and Eric Topol, cardiologist and executive VP of Scripps Research and professor of molecular medicine. This will tell you everything you wanted to know about COVID from the beginning until now and how to prevent the next pandemic. Listen in. Well, hello, this is Eric Topol uh, for Medscape One-on-One, -on -one, and I'm really delighted to have the chance to uh, have a conversation with uh, Professor Eddie Holmes from the University of Sydney, one of the world's great evolutionary virologists. So welcome, Eddie. Thank you, Eric. It's a real, real pleasure to be here. Well, we have plenty to talk about, obviously, with the uh, SARS-CoV-2 being like the only thing going on in the world. <laughs> 
um, before we get into what happened uh, in January, um, you've been uh, studying lots of different RNA viruses throughout your career. So can you just give a bit of background about kind of what, <clears throat> what was going on in your uh, priors before you know, yeah. coming to this one? <clears throat> My pro my prize. Yeah, so I, I, I've been doing this for 30 years now, and I started off like many people did on HIV, um, <clears throat> because that was the virus that introduced us all to emerging viruses. And I, um, I was living in Edinburgh, and I was working on the kind of outbreak in Edinburgh that was largely associated with in, in injecting drug use. So that was back in the, um, the early 90s. Then I moved to Oxford. I started doing more kind of comparative evolutionary viruses, looking at how different viruses evolve, what are the common principles underlining virus evolution and emergence. And um, in the last sort of decade or so, I've mainly been doing um, metagenomics to understand if you take what shapes, what, how big is the virusphere? What structures the virusphere? Okay. And the way I answer that and how, how, do, how do things move, viruses move between species? And the way I do that is, is by doing this metagenomic sequencing. So taking, and it's normally animals, so taking animals, what virus do they have? And what shape, it's looking at whole ecosystems and, and what, um, what's moved between them. And a lot of that work has been done in collaboration with Professor Zhang, who I'm sure we'll talk about shortly from, from um, he was in Beijing, now in Shanghai. And um, so we together did a lot of metagenomic sequencing. And it was that technique, in fact, that they used to um, sequence SARS-CoV-2. Right, so that's a really important point you're getting at, which is this next generation sequencing where you can sequence everything approach and then figure out what it all is. Um, yeah. Uh, so that, that's been transformative, yeah. right? I mean, that's, that's oh, changed the whole inc field. Incredible. Yeah, just, just in terms of pattern discovery, think back to HIV. So it took two, two years, two years from, from the first description of AIDS until we found the causative virus, okay? Um, and that was done using um, you know, classic virological techniques. SARS, SARS one took 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 a few weeks. Um, as we and as we discussed, Zhang, it took forty hours to get from the sequence samples arriving in his lab to getting the virus. Okay, so that so that that I mean, there's lots of failings in our approach to emerging diseases, huge failings, but pathogen identification is not one of them. Okay, right, right. that is something we can do. And the genomics in this in this outbreak has been absolutely astonishing. We've got over 250,000 genomes sequenced. We may well get a million by the end of the outbreak. So that, that bit oh. has been good. Yeah, no, I think it's changed the world in terms of the reliance on genomics to understand uh, spatial temporally what's going on in an outbreak and so much more. Now, the first documented case uh, in December of uh, COVID, and I guess the samples arrived to Professor Zhang's uh, Shanghai lab on the 3rd of January. And yeah. um, he, as you said, 40 hours later had this sequence. And then there was, uh, I guess he was going to, he was submitting this to nature, the sequence, which yeah. was great. Um, and you and he have collaborated quite a bit uh, over the years. And you suggested it would be good for him to put it uh, out on the web somewhere, right? So everybody could start working on it. Yeah. So what happened? Yeah. So what happened was um, we actually had. I'll just I'll just replay a bit. We we had um, seven samples. Well, Zhang had seven samples arrive in his lab on the third of those, and they're all they're all associated with this this famous seafood market in Wuhan. 
um, workers there or people who live right next door. Of those seven, one, one, they're all lung wash samples. We actually had a lung wash study project going on in Wuhan at the time. Quite wow. Right. Um, so, um, yeah, of those seven, one, one of the lung wash samples was positive on January the 3rd. He sequenced it on the 5th. On that, the same day, it's actually very important. Um, he sent it to, to GenBank. But more importantly, he told the Ministry of Health in China that this was, it was obviously a novel coronavirus. It was clearly very closely related to the first SARS virus. In fact, between us, we were calling it SARS, right? It, you know, it was kind of obvious at the time it looked that so close. And because of that, because it was a coronavirus, because the first SARS virus, coronavirus was respiratory, we thought this is going to be a respiratory virus. We said this is likely respiratory and that people should take precautions. So that was made apparent very early on. Um, then as then as the week, you know, I, I I was I was angling for, and I should probably get to answer that question. You can remember this is the first week of January, and so it's a very different picture than we are now. So at, <laughs> right. at that point, it was, you know, we had 20 odd cases, maybe. It wasn't, it, it didn't, you know, you couldn't at that point say this is going to be a global pandemic, it's going to completely affect our <laughs> right. lives. Right. It wasn't, it wasn't like that the first week of January. It was like, hey, this is a really interesting outbreak. Um and the case numbers were not that high at that point. And it suddenly kind of in increased. So at that point, it was quite low. And so um, we thought, well, I thought, OK, we, it'd be great to put this out there. Um, and most people in the world hadn't even noticed what was going on. And so over the week, you know, I was, I was encouraging to do that. But there was, there was um, I'm going to be careful what I say here, but there was, there, was, um, there was some pressure in China not to publish anything at all. And, and I think the Chinese authorities wanted to keep a lid on what was going on. And so he was, an, obviously I'm in the West, it's a bit different, but he under China, in China was under some, um, some pressure not, not, not to re release too much data. And then I think it was on the 8th, um, the Wall Street Journal of all places published an article saying it's a novel coronavirus. Because clearly they had heard from other scientists in China mm. that, that it was. And there were other groups sequencing, okay? So there are many people working on oh. this. Okay. Um, Zhang was Zhang was not the, not the only one, nor even the first one. Um, but it turned out we were the one that made open access. Um, right. So on the eighth, I think the, um, the the Wall Street. So we, so we submitted a paper on the seventh um, to Nature. The, the Nature were very keen for us to release it. Um, Wall Street Journal announced it on the eighth. Uh, on the ninth, I think the Chinese authorities confirmed it was a novel coronavirus. Okay. And at that point, it just seemed to me quite ridiculous. Here we have, we know, everyone knows it's a coronavirus, but we're not saying what it is. And of course, as the week was going on, the cases were slowly increasing. It became more and more of, a, of, a, of, a, of an issue. Um, and then there was a lot of social media people, you know, discussing it's a coronavirus, we need to know what it is. And Jer Jeremy Farrer, director of the Wellcome Trust, um, certainly was very vocal in that. And, you know, I was trying to in encouraging Zhang to do this. Um, and again, he was under, under, under some constraints. And then it got, it got to the point, I thought, we, just, we'd have, we have to get this out now. She's just, she's just, you know, crazy. And so I, I called him. It was very early Saturday morning, my time. Even earlier his time, I should say. And he was on a plane. He was about to fly between Shanghai and Beijing. I can never remember which direction he was going. But he was strapped in his seat, you know. And I was saying, Zhang, we have to release the sequence. And he said, oh, give, me a, give me a minute to think about it. Um, and uh, he, he said, okay, do it. And so then, um, luckily, my good friend and colleague, Andrew Ramber from Edinburgh, um, was still awake. It's about 1am 1, 1 in his time. And he runs this <clears throat> website called virological.org, um, which has been a very nice open access forum. And I, I 
we had some frantic emails and then we wrote some text. So I, I, I he helped me do this, write some text to, for the release. And then I posted it on, on that website, um, Saturday lunchtime here. And then immediately simultaneously put it on Twitter. And that was the first, you know, that was the open access moment for the- for Yeah, well, it, it's gonna go down in history as one of the most famous tweets ever. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not very good at Twitter, Eric, right? So I, well, <laughs> I tend to use right, yeah. as, as few words as possible. It's actually pretty remarkable. And in fact, you know, in uh, nature, um, the, you know, Professor Shang is one of the top 10 of yeah. 2020. And the story that you just recounted is, is in there where the, you were on the phone with him and the flight attendant was telling him to get off the phone. And he was telling That's you right. to go ahead and put out the sequence. And, you know, it's really historic because obviously every minute counts when you're trying to move forward. And the key here is that it went, um, to the NIH and Moderna very quickly. Yep. In fact, um, what's interesting is to hear um, how it was just a matter of um, you know hours before they started rolling with, from that sequence oh. to the, the vaccine. Did you envision that was the next step, the vaccine? No, it, that that's happened so so quickly, and I I, I knew there would be. I I thought what's the first thing people will do is they'll use it for, for design, you know, PCR tests. And I thought that's the obvious thing. And that's what Christian Drosted and, and Marion Cooper's people did in, in Europe, which was very good. The vaccine thing, I mean, the whole mRNA vaccine, um, that, no, that, that's a completely, I didn't see that coming. And that is mm -hmm. incredibly, and that, that is a, a, a complete game changer. And it's so gratifying. But I could also say it was, it was actually quite tense in all this, you know, sending sequencing and, and editing things. And I was such, you know, I was so, I felt under such pressure to get out. I didn't even check what it was before I posted it. Okay. <laughs> I got the sequence file and I thought, right, I'm going to put it up there. And then after I posted it, I thought, actually, I better check that it really is a coronavirus. So I quickly did some, you know, quick bit of blasting. It really was the right coronavirus. <laughs> I thought, God, I could have put completely the wrong thing up and gone down in history as one of the stupidest tweets ever. But luckily, it was no, the wrong thing. I don't think so. It, it basically accelerated the whole process. And uh, I think the fact that we have the vaccines, two of them out, mRNA, based on that sequence yeah. now, is uh, it's quite remarkable. Now, yeah, um, I, I, I don't want to get into the details, although it's been written about um, that, you know, there certainly was pressure on uh, Professor Zhang with respect to the rectification order and some lab issues. Uh, there's, you know, obviously his side of the story and whatnot, but it, it wasn't easy. That is, it was it was great for moving the field forward, but he, he may have suffered uh, in, in part because of his open science approach, I guess. Yeah, and, and again, it, and I, I need to be cautious here because, the, the, you know, um, there are people, you know, there are people's lives and one well, of lives, but the people's um, uh, careers that that are involved in this. So I need to be careful what I say. So, um, yeah, there were pressure and that, that there, there were there were some some consequences for for what we did. Um, but we, you know, we I don't think I, I don't regret. I'm sure, and I know James and Grant regret for microseconds what we did. And I do it a heartbeat now. We had to do it. We, we, yeah. it, it was a it was a, a, you know, a moral, scientific imperative for us to do it. Um, and I think it shows, I think it just shows, as you said, because of the amazingly rapid development of vaccines based on that sequence, it shows the absolute 
power and necessity and beauty of open science. Okay, and I think that yeah, that's absolutely. a critical thing. Yeah. And I hope and I hope that I hope that you know once our present political issues um, change, and I hope they'll change in January, um, that that the authorities in China will realize how important open science really is. Okay. Right. And I, well, and, and I, and I, I think they wanted to, I think the word, I mean, the word SARS is, a, is, is, is quite a difficult thing in China. And I think they, they really didn't want to panic people and they, they wanted to control the message. Um, and that was their goal. Um, but, you know, it kind of probably stretched too far. I think that's the, that's the issue. Right. Well, in the, in that nature recognition of professor Zhang, he, um, he is quoted saying it was a turning point for China. It was a turning point for the world. And yeah. uh, clearly, you know, Eddie, your role in this was very damn, was very damn important because, you know, you helped get it out there and we're indebted to you. I, I just well, want to say yeah. we're really just, indebted to you. Well, I think I'm just a messenger. Look, I've worked for China for many years. I understand how, how a little bit how China works. Um, and they, they have a lot of pride and and they, they you know there's a lot of national pride and you just have to be wary of the, of the way you do things and behave in certain ways. Um, but and, and I, I was I'm you know I am the only Western scientist involved in a lot of those early early papers because I spent a lot of time going to China and working with them. And, and when you go to China, you're working with scientists, right? You're not working with the state apparatus. Right, people need right. to understand that. You're, it's just like you and I talking now. You're you're with these people, and it's just a normal scientific interaction they just happen to be chinese you're, you're in china that's the only difference but everything else works um uh the same way and i think the critical thing is this is what really worries me most of all if if the politics gets in the way of, of data sharing and science we are in a much worse place than we will be and the key thing now is we have to try and prevent this ever happening again and, and, and step number one has to be immediate rapid open data sharing. You've seen how the speed is the, of the essence when it comes to a pandemic. And any barrier that gets in the way of us sharing that data, because there's, there's political you know, consequences of that, that's, that's gonna make us a world much less safe place. Absolutely. So we have to work with these people. We have to share data as openly as possible. And that should be the lesson you get, you get from this outbreak. No, that is so important to reinforce. Um, and as you say, it wasn't just to develop a vaccine, which we, you could hardly envision could move at this, uh, you know, unprecedented velocity, but also diagnostic testing. Uh, so yeah, exactly. there was so much at stake there. Now, um, fast forward. Um, now we have these two vaccines based upon that knowledge of the sequence. But now we have a new problem. <laughs> this variant uh, in the UK, uh, not necessarily born in the UK, but this B117 has cropped up in recent weeks and has led to a big um, surge in spread in not just uh, parts of the UK, but it's been recognized. I, I understand there's at least one uh, case in Australia, uh, uh, Netherlands, Italy, Denmark. So it's, it's gotten around a bit. And obviously there may be other countries that aren't doing sequencing that may have it there. And, and uh, in the US, you know, we haven't seen that yet, or the South African variant, the N501Y, yeah. which seems to have some threads as far as a, a, an important spike mutation. So what's your sense about this? You know, wh wh where are we headed now? Um, yeah, no, it's the very, it's obviously, it's the question of the moment. 
Um, so I'm, I'm not directly involved in, in the UK work, so I'm seeing it kind of secondhand. Um, but my, my, from, the, from the body of data that I've seen, there, is def there are definitely concerns here. I think there are a number of things that are kind of acting, that there's all the links in the chain. So uh, you start with, with the epi, as you mentioned, this, this variant does appear to be growing very rapidly in the UK. Um, and that's not just because the, the, I think the south of England was had free restrictions, because if that was the case, then all the variants would, would increase in frequency. It's one particular one, that's one lineage that's increasing in variants compared to any, any others, and it's growing quite, quite quickly. And the same appears to be true in South Africa. It's a different lineage, but it has some other, at least one of the same mutations. So that's, that's, um, that's a worry. Um, the second is they're reporting now that the virus has um, evidence that has higher viral loads of infection measured by lower uh, lower on average CT values and um, more sequence reads we do sequencing so the same as more virus because that would explain the, the faster growth rate and then if you actually boil down to the actual um, biology of the virus you, as you mentioned there's this um, uh, uh, mutation that's uh, uh, amino acid fiber one in, in, in the spike protein, which is in the receptor binding domain, which is one that we'd already flagged as being a really key site. And other labs have shown that this, this mutation really um, uh, is critical for receptor binding. And of course, and then that's the same mutation that's come in South Africa as well. And so that would give you, that would be the, the molecular explanation for the, for the higher viral load, which then explains the growth rate. So all those things kind of move together. Um, so, so that's, and I think what they had to do in the UK is that, that because of, of, of they've had a very difficult epidemic, I think they felt they have to act sooner rather than later. And even though, you know, not, not all the I's have been dot, dotted and the T's have been crossed on, on the biology of this virus, it's important to act now to stop it spreading. So that, 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 then, that was what made the UK, UK government did, did, did what it did. Um, obviously, we're still now waiting a little bit on complete functional characterization. The other question, Eddie, is, uh, you know, in the U.S., convalescent plasma is being yeah. used like, you know, uh, uh, highly, um, you know, without the evidence in hundreds of thousands of people now. Could that also uh, lead to more uh, evolution of the virus because they're getting these? Well, it depends. I think it, it depends on the yeah on the on the on the number of people being used um, in relative in the, in the proportion of the population. So selection is kind of numbers game. So it depends on on there needs to be selection pressure for the virus to to to, to evolve in that way. So um, if most people in, in in the population were using convalescent plasma, then you would see a selection pressure. If, if it's if it's only a small proportion, I don't think it would select that much. But this current this current um, variant we need to monitor it closely we need to see, we need more on the basic functional biology we need to see how the vaccines will cope with this. this is the kind of key question that work's been done at the moment in the uk i think and fingers crossed that the vaccines are still going to be you know tip top and then if if they are we can breathe a small sigh of relief i think well what do you think though in terms of the let's say the the, the vaccine uh is not uh, resistant, uh, the virus, uh, of course, uh, is, uh, it's not a problem for this vaccine, but uh, it shows you that while the virus was so slow in evolving in terms of any, yeah. you know, meaningful uh, functional uh, variant, except for this D614G yeah. that became the dominant one. And uh, now we have a kind of different look at this virus yeah. 
and and so does that make you think that even if it holds up the the current vaccines hold up well that we're going to be looking at um you know, booster shots uh, adjusted to the continued evolution of the virus for the years ahead? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. So I think you need to think about evolution in different phases. So during the first phase, so basically most of this year, what you've had is a virus spreading in a population where there's no immunity. And that's been that's been the key marker of this of this outbreak, really, is because there's everyone is susceptible. So in those in those circumstances, there's no immune pressure, no immune selection pressure on the, on the virus whatsoever. And any lineage can find a susceptible host to infect. Anyone can. So it's actually really easy. So the virus just spreads and it just infects people. It's the kind of free for all. And there's, there's no selection pressure. As immunity rises in the population, right, hopefully by vaccination, although some countries like the US and the UK are really trying hard to do this without vaccination, right, as immunity <laughs> rises in the population, that's going to change the selective landscape, okay, and you will see evolution start, you will see, the virus will evolve away from that, I mean, that's an absolute racing certainty. Now, it does evolve a little bit more slowly than, than some RNA viruses, maybe three times more slow than influenza virus, but it, it's not abnormally low rate of evolution it's actually pretty average but lower than flu so my my guess is as immunity rises in the population hopefully again by vaccination you will start to see gradually immune escape that will happen that's an inevitable consequence of of, of, of natural selection it's just it's been played out you know in from millennia it's going to happen again so eventually we will need very likely to update these vaccines at some point you know then maybe that take two years or five years or one year i don't know but um it it's it's it, to, to me it's a racing certainty that the immune selection pressure is going to push the virus in a certain way and um and so you might you'll start to probably see more directed evolution than you have done in the past okay because now it's harder for the virus to find a susceptible host because right. people are immune right and so only the fittest strain is going to make it through and that that fitness is going to depend on on its particular antigenic configuration so um, rising immunity will completely change selection pressure. And I think it become even more seasonal too. I think early on, um, seasonality didn't need to be seasonal because everyone's, there were so many susceptibles at any lineage considered at any time. As immunity rises and susceptibles become fewer in the population, the, the right uh, climate conditions for spread become more important. So all mm. those things will change. The virus will change in its, in its behavior because of rising immunity. Well, I mean, this is a central point you're making in that the, the race towards population level herd immunity vaccine yeah. induced is countered by the virus uh, evolving. And uh, we're not seeing the end of this virus just because you get 80% of whatever the world. Um, no. Yeah. And no, so I, 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 this, this is an endemic story, would you say? Oh, totally. I, yeah. I, I, I would be I would I would think I would put money on this being an endemic respiratory virus. Absolutely. I, I, I don't think we're even, you know, even if we, we roll out the best vaccine coverage program ever, we're not going to vaccinate everybody. We, we can't do it simultaneously. The virus will escape to it. I mean, it, evolve, it, it will evolve fast enough to, to, to keep itself going and people will be, will, will be and they'll re-enter the susceptible class. So, no, I, I think it's become endemic. Absolutely. Yeah, well. That's exciting, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of interesting to speak to uh, a leading uh, evolutionary virologist is kind of, you get a whole different perspective. 
about yeah you know because you this is what you spend your whole life on and and you really understand you know the, the context of what we're looking at right now I think it's also doing comparatively as well, because I, you know, I think I think people are talking the evolution. I've, I work on lots of different viruses, right? And I see the kind of, you know, mm -hmm. trying to see the kind of patterns between them. And, um, you know, and SARS-CoV-2 in a comparative way, I mean, it's not mysterious, right? It's not a magical virus. It has the standard properties that respiratory viruses do. And it's, it's, and it's subject to the same rules of epidemiology and evolution. Right? And they're pretty, and they, and they work pretty well, right? And I think we can make a fairly, I can't predict what mutations will appear in what order at what time, but I think I can make a pretty sure prediction that it's going to evolve and it's going to escape unity like everything always does. So I think that's pretty safe, pretty safe prediction. Well, um, would you say it's fortunate that, um, that at least a spike protein uh, gave it this um, ability to, to get a, a potent vaccine? Would you have predicted, for example, this whatever 95% efficacy? Uh, no, 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 no. I, I, I was confident. I was optimistic that we were not actually confident. Uh, silly word. I was optimistic that we get a vaccine. I was more in the. I was thinking more in the sixty, maybe seventy percent, if we were lucky. And right. Certainly not ninety-five. Ninety-five is is uh, absolutely spectacular. And more than once, right? Multiple vaccines seem to do the same thing. So um, we're in. And some months ago, we did a little, um, I did an exercise some people the Wellcome Trust. It's very interesting on kind of on horizon scanning. So playing out what the future might be in kind of five, 10 years to 10 years time. Um, and we looked at vaccination and, and immunity, you know, immunity and antivirals. And in, in, in our vaccine horizon scanning future predictions, a vaccine of this efficacy was our absolute best case scenario. I mean, right up there, right? You know, so, and our middle case, most likely scenario was a lot, a lot worse. So I think in the vaccinations, we're in a very good, very good place and incredible speed. So these people have done an amazing job. Yeah, well, you helped them, uh, you and Professor Zhang. Now, um, how do we get smarter for the next pandemic? We're going to have another one. Your friends, these viruses are going to haunt us uh, in the future. How do we avoid, you know, having um, the, the, the toll here of, of harm, of deaths and long COVID and everything else is profound? What, yeah. How can, we, how can we be smarter? So I think, I think, there, are, I think there, are, there are three things we can do of increasing kind of difficulty. I think the simplest thing we, we, we need to try and do is, is somehow... And it's, it's actually not simple, it's actually not easy at all, but somehow distance ourselves more from, from, the, from the animal world. And I think there, and there are clearly practices that we, we, we do today. So things like the live animal markets, the wildlife trade, not zoning when we build, we build on, on these wildlife areas where we're, we're exposed. All those things, in, they, they increase our proximity to wildlife that carry viruses, some of which can infect us. So we need to be much smarter in how we regulate our exposure to the natural world. And that's quite a, that's quite a you know, relatively easy thing to do, just to just regulate more um, those practices. Second, we need much better, um, this is a very obvious thing, much better global surveillance. And by that, I mean, I think the people who work at the human animal interface, or live at the interface, they are the sentinels. They're the canaries in the coal mine, because they're gonna get exposed more, more than anyone else. So for those sorts of people, maybe we'll need regular immunological screening, like some like VIA scan, a very cool technique. Um, 
I've heard this global immunological observatory looking at blood, you know, blood samples globally, maybe metagenomics occasionally of people who work, say, in abattoirs or what, live animal markets on a regular basis. And they're, because they're the front line, they're like the fault line, who I like to think in this kind of, in this earthquake analogy, they're, they're, they're where the tremors take place. So they need to be monitored really closely. And then that data has to be shared absolutely freely and quickly as possible globally. So there shouldn't be local governments holding on to it and saying we'll handle it we'll handle it ourselves that is just that they're, they're, that's a barrier to pandemic prevention so surveillance at the front line people animal human interface rapid data sharing and finally and this is the really difficult this is the really the, the, the i guess the, the the apollo project thing is we need to have you know stockpiled in our freezers broad acting antivirals and potentially vaccines that can recognize a whole span of coronaviruses mm. or influenza viruses. So look, I'm, I'm not into prediction, but I think it's pretty obvious that um, there are a set of viruses that are particularly jumpy and that are likely to emerge in the future. And I would say the top three to me would be coronaviruses. This is number five in last 20 years, coronavirus, right? In humans, so it's coronaviruses, influenza viruses and paramyxoviruses seem to me the most likely to emerge. And so for those three, are there ways, this is a really big science project that we can, we can develop antivirus that can recognize multiple of these or, or, or vaccines and have those ready, rather than having to wait, even, even a year is really quick, but a year is, is time, rather than having to wait for that, we have them there pretty much that we can roll out. So, and that's, that's the real, that requires massive basic science investment. Okay, a lot of smart people working on it. Well, that's really helpful to kind of get a sense of what uh, lurks ahead, uh, particularly your ranking of the virus families that need a special attention. I love the concept of you know, the broad preparation with antibodies and, and structure-based yeah. vaccines. That's that's you know that have uh, you know that broad uh, capability. Well, Wait, so even now, even now, sorry to interrupt, even now, I think in the coronaviruses, we know, if you look at the evolutionary tree of coronaviruses, you can see there are some lineages that appear like in the beta coronaviruses that jump most often. I think we know what they are. So I think we can certainly start to plan around, oh, they're the likely ones. Do they have any structural features in common that we can, we can, now, we can now utilize? So I think we can start on that now. Yeah, I know. Excellent point. Well, I have to tell you, Andy, this has been a fascinating discussion. Uh, we, we hadn't met before, but to get your sense of the world uh, is just invaluable. And uh, you know, having haven't seen the historic tweet and, and some of the, the, um, the story is about you know, what all happened back in January and, and as well as some of your extraordinary work in the past, it's, it's really a, a privilege to have this conversation with you. And any, oh, any parting words of wisdom? <laughs> no, really, no. I, I think that it not at all. It, it's special to talk to you because your your um, the way you convey the message on on Twitter for people to understand is absolutely invaluable. I think that, and I think that's been um, a huge a thing. In fact, I guess that does lead me to one of the things that I have noticed. I think your part of as well, in that the the, the social media um, its power in the pandemic has been absolutely amazing because it's so rapid, it's so immediate. And you can get your message out extremely quickly. Unfortunately, sometimes it's, that's led to confusion, but normally it's been a phenomenal way of, of rapidly um, passing on what needs to be known. 
more efficient than the other standard channels that we've built since World War II to convey information <laughs> about pandemics. It really has, okay? Yeah. And so I think for the future, another thing we need to do is we need to enhance those sorts of social media things and because they are so direct, they're so rapid. And for this, and the pace that pandemics go, that has to be the way forward. We can't wait for these, you know, these official official committees to meet and have everyone going to sign off and say because they are I mean, they're valuable though they are. Um, sometimes it's got to be quick, right. and, and and social media is is just fantastically good at that. And that that has been an absolute game changer too. I think. Well, no question. The open science, as well as having. Um, that that um, ability to get the word out through Twitter. And one other thing just to mention is the genomics community globally has really been, yeah. of all the different parts of life science that I'm familiar with or medicine, the genomics community has really led the charge to be open like this. You have, of course, throughout your career. And now we saw how it paid off because it could have taken a lot longer to get where we are in terms of a remedy. And so thank you for that. Thanks for the chance to visit with you. And I look forward to following you closely, and, uh, checking in with you and the times ahead as we deal with this endemic mess. My Thanks absolute so much, pleasure, Eddie. Eric. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to the Radical Reverend Show. This is on podcast, of course, as well as on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm always interested in what you have to say. Till next time. Whoa.